Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. On today's episode, the History Guy tells two stories of bugs and destruction. First, he talks about the Great Wine Blight, where bugs nearly destroyed the French wine industry. Then he talks about the Rocky Mountain Locust and the Great Plague of 1874. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. Regardless of whether you enjoy the occasional libation, wine has been an essential part of human history for millennia. The, the Greeks and Romans had a god of wine. It's been an essential part of religious ceremonies for many religions for at least thousands of years. It's memorialized on Egyptian tombs, where wine was considered to be an essential part of the afterlife. And of course, for many hundreds of years, drinking wine and beer was safer than drinking water. The roots of the wine industry go very deep, and of course they continue today. According to Statistia, the global wine market in 2018 was valued at more than $350 billion. And yet all this long history could not protect the wine industry from devastation. The great wine blight of the 19th century threatened the very existence of grapes and how a pestilence that was brought by vines from the United States ended up being eradicated by those same vines is history that deserves to be remembered. It is believed that the Old World vine named Vitis vinifera originated in the Caucasus and Zagros mountain regions east of the Black Sea, where some of the highest peaks in Europe spread through Azerbaijan, northern Iran, and eastern Turkey. A Stone Age people known as the Shulaveri Shomu were using obsidian tools, domesticating cattle and growing grapes as far back as 8,000 years ago. The first known winery was established in a cave system in Armenia somewhere around 4100 BC, near the village of Ereni, which is still known for its winemaking. With the spread of civilization south and west through the Mediterranean, grapes and wine also spread. Over thousands of years, the plant diversified and adapted to various climes and locations leading to what is now over 1,300 different varieties of grapes. In areas where wine grapes were a greater agricultural staple, larger numbers of varieties flourished. For example, in France and Italy combined, there are currently more than 500 varieties of grapes, whereas Greece has fewer than 80, and Turkey only a third of that. French colonists in America tried to establish vineyards in Florida with European vines as early as the 17th century. These failed without the colonists understanding why. However, the Spanish missionaries had success with the European vines in Texas in the 17th century and then California in the 18th century. And California wine, and therefore grapes, boomed during the gold rush. In 1837, when German immigrants began settling in the Missouri River lands at current-day Herman, Missouri, they found native grapevines in abundance. The early town settlers sold vacant lots for $50 over five years interest-free, with the only condition being that they had to be used for grapes. Over the following years, their wine quality quickly improved with the introduction of cultivated varieties and the help of self-taught man named George Hussman. Hussman's family immigrated to Herman when he was 10. His father began growing grapes and George planted his own vines on his father's farm at the age of 20. Without any formal higher education, he became a renowned scientist and educator and, furthermore, is considered the father of the Missouri grape industry. 
Hussman studied soil types and experimented with hybrids to find grapes that would thrive in the heat and humidity of summer and freezing cold of winter in Missouri. Meanwhile, Europe was enjoying the benefits of globalization. Grapes were brought from America for grafting and experimenting with different varieties. Steamships shortened trips across the ocean, bringing imports from all over the world. But with the spread of goods came disease. Sometime before 1863, vines containing a tiny aphid-like pest were rooted in France. Called phylloxera for the Greek for dry leaf, the pest devastated thousands of acres of grapevines in France in the 1800s in what was called the Great French Wine Blight. The blight then spread throughout Europe and as far away as Africa and Australia and eventually even to the European vines in California. The French government tasked a group of men with uncovering the cause of the blight. Jules Planchon, a French botanist and head of the Botanical Sciences Department at Montpelier University, examined dying and dead plants and roots and declared phylloxera to be the cause. But in late 19th century Europe, scientists were not always a trusted lot. Industrialization and modernization were new, and old thinking with myths and legends still carried weight. Even for those who concluded that the bug caused the disease, the complex life cycle made insecticides and chemicals ineffective in stopping the plague. Vintners went to extreme lengths to try to eradicate the infestations, and the French government offered a bounty to the hero who could find the cure. Some of these remedies included flooding vineyards, burning vineyards, and applying urine or garlic, or simply praying. Estimates claimed the loss was as high as nine-tenths of grape production. The stakes were high, but the enemy was still partially a mystery. The life cycle of phylloxera is strange. It was called phylloxera vasitrix, or the devastator, because in one form, aptly called the root form, it feeds on the roots of the vine, injecting a poison that prevents the natural healing of the plant, forming nodules and eventually killing the plant entirely. In another form, the sexual form, the male and female hatch, completely lacking a digestive system. They mate and then the male dies. The female lays one lone egg before she, too, dies. This egg becomes a nymph of the leaf form, which lays eggs and galls on the leaves that form embryos through asexual reproduction, which can become either leaf form or go subterranean to infect the roots as the root form, producing up to seven generations, which can all reproduce asexually, or become the sexual form, ad nauseum. The generation born in autumn overwinters in the roots to emerge in spring. To complicate things more, in certain humid climates, they can also transform into a winged version, flying to other vines to bring more devastation. And to complicate matters even further, phylloxera survive mainly in different stages of this cycle depending on which type of vine they're invading. The roots of the European grape Vitis vinifera are thinner, so the subterranean version destroys the plant from the roots, injecting its poison and killing it off completely within a few seasons. The Native American grape rootstocks are sturdier and mostly unaffected, and the vines are tolerant to the bug which procreates as the leaf form, feeding on the vines and producing annoying galls that don't kill off the plant. For those old world vines, when the plant died, the bug moved on, and so examining the dead plants didn't actually reveal the presence of the bug, even though by then it would be covering the neighboring vineyards. Two schools of thought emerged. There were those who thought phylloxia was causing the illness, but there were others who thought that phylloxia was merely a symptom, that the bugs moved in as the plant was already dying. Meanwhile, back in Missouri, Vitus labrusca was flourishing, producing about 1.3 million gallons of wine and even winning awards. Stonehill Winery, which was the second largest winery in the United States and third largest in the world, won the highest honor, best wine of all nations, at the 1873 Vienna World Expo with its American heritage grape, the Norton. 
And American scientist Charles Valentine Riley, the first state entomologist for the state of Missouri, confirmed Planchon's theory of phylloxera as the cause of the blight. He also noted that Vitis labrusca and other American vines, native and hybrid, were resistant to the bug and advised grafting these resistant American rootstocks. Importing the American grape rootstocks and grafting French vines onto it would make the vines themselves resistant to the organism. Yet for many French vintners, the thought of grafting their European vines onto American rootstock, the same American rootstock which had harbored the vile creature currently wreaking havoc on their livelihood, was abhorrent. The options were limited, spend vast sums of money on chemicals that may or may not work, give up their grapes to hire themselves to larger vineyards in need of help, or simply replace their grapevines with wheat or other agricultural goods. The economic impact of phylloxera was enormous. It is estimated that in the 15 years period from the late 1850s to the mid-1870s, France's wine industry took a loss of over 10 billion francs. But those vintners that were determined to save their grapes at any cost began grafting. American rootstocks from various regions were gathered and sent to France, 10 million from Missouri alone, although those were eventually discarded because they did not fare well in the French soil. Thomas Monson, a Texas horticulturalist and prolific breeder of grapes, suggested the use of rootstock from the Central Hill region of Texas because the soil there resembled the limestone soil in many vineyards of France, making them most appropriate for the location. Frost grapes, or Vitis riparia, a widespread indigenous North American species being well known for its hardiness, also became a popular choice, although on its own this variety of grape is not suitable for wine. And with the trial and error of grafting and growing, eventually vintners grafting European vines under resistant American rootstock proved successful. The process was officially adopted, and the reconstitution of grapes in Europe and around the world began. For his part in saving grapes, Riley received the French Grand Gold Medal and was named a Chevalier of the Legion of Honor in 1884. Munson received the Order of Agricultural Merit in 1888. Planchon had a square named in his honor in Montpelier with a stone monument. It depicts a farmer offering thanks to Planchon, with the inscription on the back noting that it was the Americans who saved the French wine industry. Yet the bounty that was promised, over 300,000 francs, was never awarded, as the French government decided that the blight wasn't cured, but rather a workaround was found with grafting. Phylloxera is still a threat, as there's still no chemical that can deter the past, and there's very few rootstocks today that have not been grafted onto phylloxera-resistant rootstock. But variety is important to the protection of grapes, and one of the problems today is that some 50 of the most popular types, things like Cabernet Sauvignon or, Mer or Merlot or Chardonnay, make up some three-quarters of the grapes grown in vineyards. Some other varieties are essentially going extinct because vintners are driven by economic concerns to grow these popular and well-known varieties. For example, there's some $2.5 billion worth of Chardonnay sold in the United States every year, a powerful incentive to grow that popular variety. But the the, the, the species' richness and diversity is what protects it from things like pests and diseases and changes in climate. And part of this problem came as a result of the wine blight. Vermont vintner Diedrich Heeken explained in a 2018 edition of the magazine Wine Enthusiast, After rescuing the world's wine industry, the French government chose to push down rising interest in hybrids through a savvy smear campaign in Western winemaking cultures inherited a negative bias. Saving French wine created a culture that excluded the grapes that had saved it. Wine importer Andrew Stover notes in the same article that American varieties were further damaged when the U.S. wine industry was virtually wiped out during Prohibition. 
And one solution is to simply broaden your scope. Go to the store and pick out a different bottle. Not just the one because you recognize the name, but maybe something just because you like the bottle or just a type of grape you've never tried before. Food and Wine magazine suggests that maybe you try Ferment, which is Hungary's primary white, or Blaufrankisch, which is an Austrian medium-bodied red, but our friends over at the Stonehill Winery, whom we'd like to thank for their gracious help in researching this episode, might suggest a fine Missouri Norton. If you try something different, you might convince a vintner to continue to cultivate a different grape, maybe a, an indigenous variety, or maybe a variety whose history goes all the way back to ancient Egypt. You might even help to preserve wine for future generations. And that would be history that deserves to be remembered. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy. A little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff that you only get to hear about on the podcast. So the first part of this episode, you know, is really about the history of wine. And wine has an incredibly deep history, and uh, it goes it goes all the way back. And I think that's kind of an interesting an interesting piece is that I mean we've always heard about wine. Gosh, even back in when you read like Homer, he calls the sea the wine dark sea. That's that's how far back this well goes farther than that goes yeah. pre predates written history. Yeah, I don't think this is a comprehensive history of wine. I think that we might have more episodes. We do have an episode on champagne, by the way. Yeah. But uh, it is uh, obviously you can't talk about grapes without talking about wine. Uh, and the grapes that were affected here were, you know, not your Concord eating grapes. These were wine grapes. But so you do have to understand the importance of wine and wine to the regions. And, I, you know, I think there's a lot more to probe because there's such a history there. But, I mean, we like to do that on the history guy. We like to uh, uh, go along the topic to uh, also present the background that makes sense of why that was important. And, and that's, you know, that's uh, that was interesting. I mean, we, we rewatched this episode just yesterday uh, that, I mean, there's a lot there that's kind of, you know, very interesting about how important yeah. it was. And especially to, to uh, France and the economy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, today we would think of France as France as the wine country. Yeah, uh, Italy too, I suppose. But France is a, France is a big deal, and well, Champagne, and there's a lot in you know, California too now. Yes. But I mean, you think of uh, France as being kind of the place where wine originates. Yeah, that's not necessarily true. But I mean, also just to realize that there was very nearly a point in history where uh, France wouldn't grow be able to grow grapes anymore, and French wine would have disappeared. And how different would the world yeah. be if we did that yeah well, even even just culturally you think of france and how important wine is to just kind of the french identity yeah. and it's it's hard to imagine a france without wine but yeah. we but nearly I mean, had it we we nearly had it yeah it's one of those uh, if you you know there's a lot of what ifs in history but i mean there's there's a point here where it looked like the french wine industry was going to completely collapse because of just because of a bug a bug a yeah. really weird bug it is well, you know. I, I think. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's fair to call a bug weird. The bug might be insulted. Um, no, a <laughs> bug that was hard to eradicate. I, there's there's a lot of different kinds, but bugs become very specialized, uh, and uh, these bugs were interesting because they specialize in such a way that uh, they're they're very difficult to get rid of because they come in three phases. Yeah. Right? You know, if you have a process that kills one, then the you know, the other one survives. And uh, also that I did when the plant died. The bugs would move along, and so yeah. that when you found the dead plants, you couldn't figure out what had killed them. So it took a long time. But I mean, we were just looking up. There's, we've really still not developed solutions uh, that would eradicate the bug. We just have yeah. to. We have to kind of plant around 
what the bug's able to do to plant species that are resistant. Yeah, yeah it's, it looks like still the only way to really deal with these bugs is to to use resistant rootstocks, and that's I mean that's crazy, you know, to think that we have this. Uh, this bug that we've known we've known about for several hundred years at this point uh, that has continued to be a, a problem and we just haven't been able to figure it's, out a better solution i mean the, th the thing is grapes in the new world eventually did figure out a solution yes. to it that's why we that's why we yeah. do the grafting but it just shows i mean there's this long evolutionary war yeah. uh, between the insect and the plant that it eats yeah uh, and that uh, you know we think that we're so super smart we can circumvent that and you know i guess in some places we probably have but I mean, in this case, uh, the, the the grapes are smarter than we are because we've not been able to figure yeah. out anything to do with but this bug. Yes, some some of these some of the grapes have figured out how to get roots that the bugs don't like, and I think it's interesting that I, I guess I don't know that much about grafting, but it's really interesting to me that we can graft mm -hmm. roots uh, from one from one grape plant to another. I guess they're yeah, all... I just make a hybrid grape yeah. straight like that. You know, one that makes good wine but still is resistant is yeah. That's that's interesting. I know. I mean, there's lots of stuff. I know you can graft like uh, various kinds of fruits onto other kinds of fruit trees and stuff. But that, that that's an interesting one, and especially because you know it was so important to the solution here. Yes. But I mean, the grapes did change. I mean, yeah. so these are not so. Wine is different today because of this insect and because of this insect plague. Uh, and you know, you can't really explain how did wine taste different before the wine blight. Yeah, how do you? <laughs> well, I guess there. Well, the, the, there's some yeah. wine from before that, but you know that wine has aged. That's for... true. I think there were some grapes growing in other parts of the world, like the yeah. in Russia and some other places that were that still have that original rootstock. But and uh, and that's part of what the episode talks about. Then is that we've moved to just a few grapes that we yeah. use for some popular wines, and that the problem is if those become vulnerable to a pest or a fungus or something like yeah. that. Uh, we were not breeding very many kinds of grapes, and so what if we don't have a resistant grape to that? Well, and you know that's that that kind of uh, monoculture. We've talked about that in a couple of other episodes. It's the reason why bananas are different than they used to be because yeah. the kind of bananas we yeah. used to eat was has become different. It's a wholly different banana yeah. because we had to raise a banana that was resistant, and now there's a new bite attacking yeah. that banana. It's it's interesting how that that kind of stuff happens, and uh, we're we are you know our modern economy, our modern agriculture is vulnerable to that because we we want you want yeah. you know you want your grapes to taste the same or your wine or your bananas to taste the same well, uh, wherever well, it's also distribution techniques distribution, of, you know, yeah. the, the sorts of uh, fruits or vegetables or whatever that you can take long distances that will last long enough yeah. that you can transport and so yeah i mean you can still go there's a lot of farmers markets and you can still find heirloom stuff that's a big deal these days heirloom you know tomatoes or whatever but uh still uh, for the vast majority of what we're raising we're raising only a few types yeah. of each kind of fruit or vegetable or plant and those you know those that leaves us vulnerable to monocrop and you know if there was if there was a I, you know, I have no idea. How would the world change if Chardonnay disappeared yeah. tomorrow? If I, I, you know, I don't know. I'm, well, sure. I'm sure there are people who would miss it, but it's. Uh, I mean, we'd also, you know, we've survived. I imagine that I could get along without Chardonnay. And there might be someone out there who'd be pretty pretty sad yeah, about it's that. It's going to be something like, oh no. <laughs> but you know, either either way, that's, we're we're talking about that these these are there's a possibility of these uh, getting attacked by you know becoming some kind of blight or some kind of bug that is particularly. Uh, you know particularly good at destroying this stuff but we've we have you know we find a different fruit we find a different uh but it, you do wonder because it could affect you know massive parts of it various could. economies and, and economies and and that you know there's reasons i mean I talk about that thing there's reasons then that, that we should maybe become accustomed to or or you know develop a a love for a wider variety yeah. of options and that includes wines i think it's some crazy i think in the end i say you know just pick out a bottle of wine even if you just like the, the label yeah you know just you know just to, to try different tastes so that we're not stuck on just a few i got some criticisms from uh wine people 
that the sort of person that picks wine because of the label is, is not a... Yeah, they don't have high respect for that. But, well, you know... Uh, you they know, might be sad if Chardonnay goes away. That's the... yeah, that's true. They're the ones that might miss it. It's not... I mean, first of all, not not everybody is a wine connoisseur. And yeah. secondly, you know, even even wine connoisseurs uh, probably want to try different kinds of wines now and again and, and different different grapes. Well, and you certainly could say that if we're talking about, you know, the health of uh, of wine species or grape species, grapes, yeah. grape, grape yeah. wines, uh, we that it would be beneficial to the folks who, who really like their wines if we had some other kinds of wines that might uh, help, you know, keep the genetic diversity and such that we need. Um, hard to, it's hard to say. I mean, who knows if anything will happen to wines? It's just that there's a vulnerability. But I mean, you know, it's, there's, I mean, as a matter of fact, that where the topic came from, this was actually written by Carolyn, who's our business manager, occasionally writes episodes for us. But she had been down in the Missouri wine country, uh, and in Missouri wine country, and, you know, M- Missouri is very proud of its wines, too. If you, yeah. I mean, you don't think about it, America, about Missouri wine as opposed to California wine or whatever. But they're very proud in Missouri that they're that they're great uh, uh, strains saved yeah. the French wine. And, and so it's a, it's a big topic of discussion. So, I mean, wherever, wherever you go, I mean, obviously, there's going to be different, you know, different people with different tastes. And uh, there's probably some really good wines out there that if yeah. you're... If you're limiting yourself to one or two, you always order the same wine, then you'll understand that if we start growing all of our crops to that, uh, then we put our crops at risk and we'll wonder what happened to the other grapes that we used to have. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's happened with lots of, lots of stuff. And we've, of course, we've, we have that problem with apples too. That one's yeah. a little different because uh, the apples, uh, we've, we have created that because, I mean, those are again, you know, apples that the best apples for eating or for travel and stuff like that. But the apples used to be, we had dozens and, or yeah, hundreds yeah, yeah, of yeah, they species. Because apples are polyzygote. Yeah. Uh, they, they, then, uh, you know, if you plant an apple seed, it's not going to be the same as, as the parent apple. And what that means is that well, since we are only really eating a few kinds of apples, yeah. those are all, they're all grafted from scions, which means they are yeah. genetically identical. Yeah. So all uh, you and need that is... means if they have a vulnerability. Well, you know, that's a, that's what happened to... I, in the potato, uh, the potato famine is yeah. that 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 blight. They think that the you know the potatoes in Ireland came from an extremely small number of original potatoes, and you just cut the potato up, and then they'll grow into more uh-huh. potatoes. But that's problematic when you have a blight that uh, specifically yeah, uh, is that, especially virulent that of, among that of strain. Potato, yeah. And so that that was part of why. I mean, there's there's you know there's complexities to that too. But that is so. There's and, and you know the the general story of the history guy, which is if we think things are bad now, we've had it worse. I mean, there was yeah. there was a point where the world nearly lost wine which would be awfully crazy something that you know we had that humanity has had for so long and so deep into history uh, that was almost wiped out or significantly wiped out yeah. you know at a, at a and, from, from a bug and there are strains there are types of wine that are now forgotten history yeah. because this bug wiped it out that's yeah so, that's crazy if you think we have things to whine about now <laughs> ha, ha, ha. Oh, oh, so humorous the history guy if we think we have things to whine about now think about the wines that we would have had if we had lost wine to the to bugs Absolutely. these you know these bugs are they have a complex life cycle yeah and i think it was really interesting hearing about that i'm not 100 yeah. percent sure i can remember it all about now. why they are so difficult yeah. to eradicate yeah i mean, I mean it's, they have different life you know they the, crazy the, the bugs have spent all of their evolutionary history trying to figure out how to be you know not be wiped out but i mean they, they are actually because of their different phases and the way that they attack those different phases and once they once they infect especially the root then there's nothing that's going to fix it uh, they've been proven resistant to everything that we have yeah. you know the same the same things like we talk about antibiotics resistant or whatever yeah. i mean they have uh, these bugs somehow put themselves in a position uh, where all the ways that we as humans think that we can get rid of of, of pests and uh, they're just more clever than we are we still haven't figured them out 
it's it's really interesting. You know, we've we've got all kinds of chemical ways of protecting plants, and that we've not found a chemical that apparently can deal with these things. Yeah, yeah, because they because they come in different phases. Yeah, yeah. There's always some version of it that that's still that's still effective. And it's an interesting story about science too. Yes, because, yes, uh, absolutely. Because uh, kind of standard science didn't believe the explanation that was going on, and uh, it's so it's it's part of that whole story too about you know scientists arguing with each other, and and uh, the the more established scientists were were uh, slower to accept what turns out to be the real answer uh, yeah. and i mean we see other places where that occurs too so i mean this this advanced our understanding yeah uh, uh, but uh, uh, not apparently in a way where we figured out what to do about it aside from graft them to uh, plants that were already resistant to them another interesting piece that you're only able to just mention you know is this idea that that after this is part of where we get this kind of uh uh, th this might get me in trouble with some among some people. This kind of French uh, elitism about their wines. This oh. these ideas that you know their wines are specific and unique to France, and that, that's kind of an interesting way of how we went from you know huh. them being saved by Missouri Missouri grapes, well in infected us. by New World grapes because well, that's where they came yeah, from, the... but then saved by them. And yeah, there were people who would rather have had the wine industry go away. Yeah, than to then, have their grapes polluted by by New World grapes. Yeah, there was some. You had mentioned there was some government stuff where they talked about you know what makes essentially what makes French wine special, and that's a part of French uh, culture today. And certainly, it's it's an interesting. I mean, you know, the, that's where it's it's only true champagne if it comes from the Champagne region. Of, the champagne region. <laughs> yeah, 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 that, otherwise, it's just sparkling. There's a lot of rules like that. Yeah, uh, yeah, and uh, that you know they say that to, for it to actually. Be, you know, even though you're making the same product in the yeah. same way with the same, you know, with the same root materials, if they're not coming from a specific region or don't have a specific recipe. So, yeah. uh, and it's, you know, there's a reason that, you know, brands protect themselves and there's history yeah. in that. I mean, we're preserving history when we do that. Uh, but it also, uh, to, to some extent, it seems like foolish to try to be so exclusive uh, because that keeps us, one of the things that keeps us from doing is like diversifying. If, if the plants also grow in many different places, that means that yeah. if there's a, a disease in one place, it doesn't necessarily have to, you know, strike another place. Yeah, yeah, and that's which is, I mean, it's just a com the world is a complex place. It is. <laughs> well, that whole process that's in the episode about how they had to figure out what ones they could graft with, and some of them weren't working because they didn't like to grow well in France. You had to find a grape uh, that would graft with it uh, that uh, also could survive in that in those conditions, and that's yeah. itself a really interesting story too, and and uh, part of a, a, a mystery yeah. uh, that scientists had to solve in order to keep the world in wine. Yeah, it's seriously, and they had to come up with the solution, and they did. You know, we came up with the solution. Yeah, uh, I wonder if they were drunk the whole time too. If they were, <laughs> intricate. If they were testing, testing the wine the whole time, and then still trying to solve this stuff. Having, <laughs> I don't know. That's not the worst way to solve a mystery. I guess it is. But I just imagine a bunch of drunken scientists coming up with grape solutions. It's... This this will be the solution to the bug. <laughs> I, it is. It is. You know, maybe it's amazing. that's why we haven't killed the bug yet. No one researching into his sober anymore. Uh, yeah, you know this these bugs phylloxera. It's it really is interesting, you know, that these were bugs that were that started in the New World and the plants became yeah. as as we mentioned, you know, they yeah. grew resistant just on their own. But you know, we had kind of created a perfect uh, perfect storm for them once they hit the New World, and our yeah, grapes I, didn't those grapes didn't have time to yeah, try to come up with that happened. I mean, well, you know, the Colombian Exchange is yeah, still going that the Colombian Exchange is still going on. Yeah, <laughs> four centuries later uh, is really. I mean, it is uh, it is interesting. Uh, and that happens. I mean, you know, that happened with smallpox too. You know, yeah. smallpox came into the new world and there was no resistance. And uh, so, I mean, it, it, that's this part of, you know, the world that we live in where stuff is shared across distances uh, that we can get a bug that was from, you know, North America and that it can go and then just run wild there in Europe. Yeah. 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 And there was, I mean, well, eventually something would have survived, but probably not the French wine industry. That's the, 
Uh, <laughs> and, and that would have been devastating to France. Would have been devastating. Oh, absolutely, right? I mean, all those people whose whose livelihood it was, uh, and yeah, who still that for is generations. Yeah, yeah. and you know, had those, and they were thinking about literally ripping up the vineyards and planting wheat because they they, they couldn't produce wine. So we've been doing this thing lately that we call Take a Trip with the History Guy. And uh, we took one to uh, Germany and Austria back in October. It was a great time. It was History Guy fans. It was History fans. We just had fun. I mean, these are some of my best friends, and we're still just talking. I mean, we talk every day to people that went on that trip. So this is not just your typical sort of tour. Uh, this is a tour of people that really have something in common. And and uh, one of the things that they have in common, obviously, is me, the History Guy. And what I can say is that these are fairly small trips uh, and so you'll have lots of time to get to know and talk to and become friends with. I hope history. I hope we all get along forever. So uh, we are doing uh, one to uh, to the Greater London area. Actually, it's going to be you know, more around London, uh, and that is in June. Uh, it's going to be June. What was it? The fifteenth to the twentieth. Uh, and uh, that trip has still lots of spots left in it. So uh, we're going to be doing a lot of really interesting things from shooting longbows to tasting cocktails to going down to the Cotswold and seeing the Cotswold. We did an episode on the Cotswold Lions. Uh, and so there's plenty of room there. As a matter of fact, there's still a few spots on the early bird specials where you can get it at a discount. Uh, and I would really love to see if you're a fan of the history guy, this is going to be a relatively affordable way for you to take an exciting trip. We'll have lots of uh, experienced tour guides. Plus, you get to spend time with me, the history guy. I guarantee it'll be a laugh a minute. Uh, if anything, just walking me, watching me walk that many stairs, got to be funny to people. <laughs> so I, you know, I won't, I won't be on it, but uh, I, I'm jealous of the people who will. It's a great chance to go to London, which of course is a lot of fun if you haven't been. Uh, but you also get to do it. You get to do it with a with a tour group. There will always be tour guides and some stuff to do. And you just happen to get to do that with the history guy. And yeah. if you like the history guy, uh, I tell you what, he's he's usually pretty likable in person too. <laughs> and I, I love London. I've been there a lot. I think we'll have a lot to say about London. But again, we'll have tour guides to do it. But we'll be doing all sorts of you know some of the stuff that you typically do, like Elizabeth Tower and Big Ben, uh, Westminster Abbey, Buckingham Palace. Uh, but we'll also be doing some things like uh, Soho and. Uh, uh, a clay pigeon shooting in archery class. Can't wait for that. I'm sure that will be humorous <laughs> in itself. I promise that I'll keep everything faking away from everybody. <laughs> uh, but also things like the, the Cotswolds villages. I'm really looking forward to that. Those are because it's such a fascinating, you know, essentially it was a very rich part of England and then uh, the wool trade collapsed and they had no money to build anything new. And so now it is, you know, it is a representation of 19th century England because wow. no one could afford a new house after their, their, their sheep were not as valuable. I know that's crazy, but it's a lot of, I mean, it's a whole lot of tours uh, uh, stuck into a fairly small space uh, uh, of time. So we'll be doing a lot of really fun stuff. Uh, and as what I found out in, in October, you know, when we were there is that it's not just the fun of the history guy. It's the fun of having a bunch of people who enjoy history and enjoy the history all together and, and they enjoy the history guy all together. Uh, so uh, uh, take a trip. Uh, it's called Trova Trip. Uh, look up Trova Trip, T-R-O-V-A-T-R-I-P, the history guy. You'll be able to find it there. Sign up. There's still some early bird spots that will give you a discount. Sign up. Sign up today. Next up, the history guy talks about the Rocky Mountain Locust Plague of 1874. The Reading Times of Reading, Pennsylvania said in November 1874 of the disaster, it was a calamity that no human foresight could have guarded against, no human skill could avert. It was as if the land had been directly smitten by the Almighty. It prostrates the staunchest, unnerves the boldest, and gives all indescribable feeling of helpless hopelessness. They were talking about Kansas, a land of promise for tens of thousands of post-Civil War settlers, which had been laid low 
by Melanopolis spretus, then simply called the grasshopper. The Great Kansas Grasshopper Plague of 1874 deserves to be remembered. To understand the grasshopper plague, you have to first understand grasshoppers. A group of insects belonging to the suborder Solifera, grasshoppers are suspected to be among the oldest living group of chewing herbivorous insects, dating back some 250 million years to the early Triassic period. The suborder includes more than 11,000 known species. Grasshoppers are hemimetabolists, meaning that they develop through three distinct phases, egg, nymph, and adult. In hemimetabolism, also called incomplete metamorphosis, the changes occur gradually without a pupil stage. The nymph hatches from the egg and then will undergo five molts, each time becoming more similar to an adult. The nymphs are called hoppers and do not have wings until the final molt when they will become adults. The hopping mechanism is interesting in itself in that it occurs with both high force and high velocity. This is a contradiction in that a fundamental property of muscles that it cannot contract with high force and high velocity at the same time. The grasshopper overcomes this issue by simultaneously building up force in a powerful extensor muscle and a small flexor muscle. The power built up in the extensor muscle is then released by relaxing the flexor muscle, allowing the insect to thrust through the ground with both a high force and a high velocity of movement. The effect is much like releasing a catapult and allows the grasshopper to jump up to 20 times its body length with a peak acceleration at takeoff of some 20 Gs, a force that Professor William Heitler of the University of St. Andrews dryly notes would probably squash a human. Grasshoppers are mainly, though not exclusively, herbivores who prefer grasses, including many cereal grains. They eat large quantities, both during development and as adults, and can thus be agricultural pests. And that is particularly true when they swarm, because some grasshopper species, under the correct environmental conditions, change color and behavior and become the agricultural plague called locusts. While grasshoppers are generally solitary and even then can be agricultural pests, under certain circumstances they start to become both more abundant and more gregarious. Swarming usually occurs after a period of drought, followed by quick plant growth. In short, good conditions for grasshoppers means that the eggs hatch. The nymph for hoppers then experience overcrowding. The crowding causes an increase in serotonin, which then causes the locusts to change color, eat much more, and breed much more easily. They stop being solitary and become gregarious, joining together in bands that slowly join together and conform into swarms so large that they are referred to as plagues. The swarms continue until they become adults, at which point they grow wings and can cover vast distances, eating everything in sight. There are several modern methods for controlling swarms, but according to the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization, locusts still represent a threat to the livelihoods of some 10% of the world's population. Plagues of locusts are nothing new. They occurred in prehistory, and the insects are mentioned in the Iliad, the Mahabharata, the Bible, and the Quran. But while plagues of locusts were both an ancient and a modern terror, there is something unique about the swarms of the American Midwest, and that has to do with a particular species of grasshopper. First described by entomologist Philip Reese Uhler in 1866, the original name given the species was Caliptenus spretus. The word spretus means despised. The reference was likely because the species had previously been overlooked by entomologists, but there was unique reason to despise this species. In 1878, the entomological community concluded that the species was correctly classified as Melanopolis rather than Caliptenus, and it is unclear exactly when the common name, the Rocky Mountain Locust, was coined. But this despised grasshopper had a unique distinction. Despite all the plagues of locusts throughout history, their swarms occurred in numbers far larger than other locust species. 
To give an idea, in 1875, a physician named Albert Child calculated the size of a swarm of Rocky Mountain locusts by multiplying the swarm's estimated speed with the time it took to move through southern Nebraska. His conclusion, what became known as Albert's Swarm covered some 198,000 square miles. That is a swarm greater than the area of California. The swarm included an estimated 12.5 trillion insects. It weighed an estimated 27.5 million tons. It was, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, the largest concentration of animals ever speculatively guessed. The Rocky Mountain locusts occurred along both sides of the Rocky Mountains. They preferred to breed in sandy areas and thrived in hot and dry conditions. This likely had to do with the nature of prairie grasses, which tend to concentrate sugars in their stalks in times of drought. When the species swarmed, they were likely assisted by the low-level jet stream that persists across North America. In 1877, British-born American entomologist Charles Valentine Riley published The Locust Plague in the United States, being more particularly a treatise on the Rocky Mountain locust, or so-called grasshopper, as it occurs east of the Rocky Mountains, with practical recommendations for its destruction. In the text, Riley logs a number of recorded locust plagues in the Americas, starting with one in the West Indies in 1632. Riley notes a number of different occurrences in California in 1722, 46, 53, 54, and 65, as well as in 1827, 28, 34, 38, and 46. An 1863 report by the Smithsonian Institution noted that up to the 11th of October, 1855, and commencing about the middle of May, these insects extended themselves over a space of the Earth's surface much greater than has ever before been noted. They covered the entire territories of Washington and Oregon and every valley of the state of California, ranging from the Pacific Ocean to the eastern base of the Sierra Nevadas. The entire territories of Utah, New Mexico, the immense grassy prairies lying on the eastern slopes of the Rocky Mountains, the dry mountain valleys of the Republic of Mexico, and the countries of Lower California and Central America. And, more ominously, they filled the air like flakes of snow on a winter's day and attacked everything green or succulent with a veracity and dispatch destructive to the hopes of agriculturalists. Swarms were noted throughout the 19th century in the Northwest, in Manitoba, in Iowa, Colorado, and Minnesota. They swarmed in such numbers that they were often so thick that trains were seriously delayed on account of the immense numbers crushed on the track. There was another plague in 1873 that spread from Colorado and Wyoming across Nebraska and the Dakotas to Iowa and Minnesota. But it was the plague of 1874 that, Riley said, will long be remembered as more disastrous, as causing more distress and destitution than any of its predecessors. While the plague of 1874 was widespread, hitting Iowa, Nebraska, and Minnesota hard, Riley noted that Kansas, perhaps, suffered most severely. Part of the story has to do with the situation in Kansas following the Civil War. The Homestead Act of 1862 granted an area of public land to any citizen willing to settle on and farm the land. By the 1870s, the Kansas Pacific Railway was operating long-distance lines that would be a principal transportation route to settlement of the fertile Great Plains. Between 1865 and 1880, Kansas, presenting irresistible promise of a better life through land, attracted immigrants at a faster pace than anywhere else in the United States. In 1870, 13% of Kansas's total population was foreign-born. Between 1860 and 1870, the population of Kansas more than tripled, from 107,000 to 364,000. It would nearly triple again to 996,000 by 1880. While much of the area affected by the grasshopper plague of 1874 was sparsely settled, it hit hard in Kansas, where many of the people affected were new settlers who had little means, who depended upon the crop that they had planted to get them through the winter. The invasion began in late July, 
what had been a promising year had given way to drought, which had already damaged crops. But the hot and dry conditions provided ideal breeding conditions for the grasshoppers. A particularly mild winter meant that more grasshoppers had survived, as had the eggs they had laid on the prairie in the plague of 1874. A Pennsylvania newspaper reported in September, nothing can describe the thorough and utter devastation of the grasshopper plague in Kansas. The insects seem to work together, swoop down upon a town, beating everything before them. The air is literally alive with them. They beat against the houses, swarm against the windows, and cover the passing trains. They work as if sent to destroy. When they came, they ate everything. They ate the wool off of live sheep and clothes off people's backs. They ate the harnesses off of horses and the paint off of wagons, the wooded handles off of tools. The website HistoryNet told the story of a Kansas girl who said that she was wearing a dress with a green stripe. The grasshopper settled on me and ate up every bit of the green stripe in that dress before anything could be done about it. The joke was, they ate everything but the mortgage. The Leavenworth Daily Commercial reported in August. It is said that they obscure the sun for hours, as if a cloud was passing, that they flew in vast swarms on either side of the locomotive like snow before a snowplow. A quarter section of corn they could easily dispose of in an hour and a half, taking for dessert whatever watermelons or pumpkins came in their way, and leaving in them not even a vestige of rind. After they passed a cornfield, nothing was left but stubs of stalks two or three feet from the ground. Residents did whatever they could to fight them, shoveling them into bonfires and even using explosives and shotguns, but they could not hold off the devastation. The Daily Commercial continued. They've already devastated the northwestern and southwestern counties, literally devouring everything. Cornfields have been left bare, trees stripped of their leaves, the grass has been cut clean to the earth, and everything in the shape of vegetation eaten by the countless myriads of voracious pests. In nearly half of the counties of the state, not a bushel of corn will be produced. It takes them only two or three days to destroy vegetation where they alight, and they advance at a rate of 20 to 40 miles a day. An inventor from Colorado invented a device pulled by horses that essentially vacuumed the grasshoppers up and crushed them, but only worked on level ground and become clogged with the crushed insects. More common was something called a grasshopper plow, a device, larger ones pulled by horses, but smaller ones that could be pulled by people, that dragged a metal sheet along the ground. Grasshoppers would jump up and hit a metal plate, falling into a bin where they could be killed with poison or kerosene or thrown into a fire. Again, it only worked on level ground and there were just too many locusts. Farmers tried herding the locusts into burning pits, but there were so many that they would often smother the fires. A St. Louis newspaper lamented, The inhabitants of the cities of the East and South have no conception of the terrible plague that has desolated some of the western states and reduced prosperous settlements to ruin and dismay. The results were most devastating to new farmsteads, the Daily Commercial noted. The older portions of the state can probably tide over the disasters of this unprecedented year without serious suffering but the desolation and ruin brought on by the drought and the grasshoppers in the newly settled counties will be dreadful. A Pennsylvania newspaper reported, the results of the calamity cannot be foretold, but already a panic has seized the new settlers of the western and northwestern portion of the state. Many of them had staked everything on this their first crop. With hardly enough worldly goods to stand them until harvest time, they suddenly find their all stripped from them, and starvation staring them in the face. The Wisconsin State Journal of Medicine, Wisconsin reported in November, 17 counties, in which an aggregate of 158,000 acres have been planted in corn, produce not a bushel of this cereal. The eight in which the greatest destruction prevails have all but been populated within the past year or two, and a greater part of that population settled within their limits, either last spring or the preceding fall. They had expended all their means in building their homes and getting in their crops. Drought and grasshoppers had wrought a total destruction of everything they had planted, leaving them totally destitute. The Bolivar Bulletin of Bolivar, Tennessee, wrote in October, People have perished from hunger. 
hunger, and despair have followed in the track of the grasshopper plagues. The St. Louis Republican reported, In one case a family of six died within six days of each other from the want of food to keep body and soul together. Charles Riley offered a unique solution. Noting that chickens and horses ate the locusts, as had Native Americans, he suggested solving both the locust problem and the starvation problem by eating the locusts. He suggested locusts pan-fried with butter and salt. One biographer said of Riley that he once cooked a meal for dignitaries. The menu, which consisted of locust soup, baked locusts, locust cakes, locusts with honey, and just plain locusts, apparently pleased his guest. Of course, most residents were keen on a grasshopper diet. Many returned east to live with families, some planning to return, but others abandoned their homestead claims and their dreams of a new life. Kansas lost as much as one-third of its population, and the flow of westbound immigrants to the plains fell by as much as 20%. The plague returned and did general damage in 1875, but then late spring rains brought relief from the swarms and abundant new crops. Slowly, governments responded with the advice of scientists like Riley. Young hoppers were collected in early spring before the swarms occurred. Nebraska actually passed a law requiring all people between the ages of 16 and 60 to work at least two days eliminating locusts at hatching time. But perhaps the most surprising twist out of the entire story is that the last example of a Rocky Mountain locust was found in 1902. Somehow between 1875, when Albert's swarm showed trillions of the insect, and 1902, the entire species became extinct. In fact, there are very few examples that were preserved because entomologists didn't bother, because entomologists could not believe that a species that prolific could possibly even go extinct. Research starting in the 1980s by Professor Jeffrey Lockwood of the University of Wyoming suggests that it wasn't the eradication procedures of the 1870s that was the species' demise. Rather, the Rocky Mountain locusts turned out to be highly specialized. They would plant eggs on the plains during swarm years, but the species was actually dependent upon a few narrow breeding grounds along the slopes of the Rocky Mountains, and they preferred sandy soil near streams, and that was perfect soil for agriculture. As settlement moved west, people farmed that land. They plowed it. They deforested it. They irrigated it. They replanted it. They destroyed the eggs and ended the locust plague without even knowing it. There were a few other swarms from other grasshopper species into the 1930s, but even those are gone now. Not so in Africa. According to the World Bank, the desert locust, found in various parts of Africa, Asia, and the Middle East, is considered the most destructive migratory pest in the world. Despite the horrific newspaper reports about the 1874 Kansas grasshopper plague, by December newspapers were reporting that the devastation was not as total as had originally been envisioned. Many crops actually matured later, and so many farmers were able to bring in some crop. And though there were dislocations and there was some starvation, the nation largely managed to pull together. Farmers helped farmers. American helped American. Cities in the East raised funds for relief for stricken Kansas. Perhaps the best message that we can get from the 1874 grasshopper plague, especially in a year when we're facing our own version of plague, is that America has survived worse, as long as we pull together. Dr. Riley gave his synopsis of the grasshopper plague of 1874. The calamity was national in character, and the suffering in the ravaged districts would have been great, and famine and death the consequence, had it not been for the sympathy of the whole country and the energetic measures taken to relieve the afflicted people. A sympathy begetting a generosity which proved equal to the occasion.
and which will ever redound to the glory of our free republic and our union. So this, you know, this is an amazing story. These grasshoppers, I mean, this is something that was apparently, I, I mean, affected life frequently. Yes, for, for centuries, who knows? I mean, we talk about a lot of things with, uh, with uh, how... Uh, settlement changed in yeah. the world and all that sort of stuff. But I mean, golly, uh, you know, who really realized? I didn't know until we were doing the research for this that just, I mean, very frequently you would have these massive swarms of grasshoppers would come and just clear out the plains. And that, that you know, that managed, you know, populations of animal life and that uh, certainly affected with the human life that was going on here. And I mean, you, you would have a grasshopper plague and it would go from Washington down to Mexico and pretty much wipe out everything green that whole way, you know, when you had one of those years where. Or you had the plague. Absolutely, millions of these things. Well, trillions. gosh, more than that. Yeah, trillions, <laughs> trillions of these yeah, things. Please. It is amazing to think about that. You know, this was something that it's it's kind of like the, you know the passenger pigeon where it was blacking out the blocking out the sun. Is that that you'd have yeah. gosh grasshoppers that could do that for miles and miles? Yeah, that was that. That's the, what was the 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 Guinness record yeah. was like the. The, the largest number of animals ever estimated. <laughs> it's because, well, I mean, like, how else could you have no guessed them? But, <laughs> yeah. The most count the grasshoppers. They, they estimated there were 27.5 million tons in, and, that, in yeah. that particular place. I mean, you see grasshoppers today, and there are longhorn and shorthorn grasshoppers, all sorts of kinds of grasshoppers. These were the Rocky Mountain grasshopper, yeah. uh, and they were, uh, they could be incredibly prolific. If you, so you would have the right, you'd have a drought year, so there wouldn't be many of them. But then the next year would be really wet, and the plants would go very, very quickly, and that's when you would get all the grasshoppers. Uh, and they would go and lay seeds then out on the plains or lay, lay eggs out on the plains. Uh, the, uh, grasshoppers don't grow from seeds. Do they? they grow from eggs. <laughs> so they would lay eggs out on the plains. And when you get the right year, there's suddenly there's just yeah. these huge swarms of these things. Actually, if you watch the video, uh, the videos that we had, there obviously weren't videos of the you know the 1850s and 1870s grasshopper plague. So those are actually, if you watch carefully, that is a grasshopper plague in Africa. It is a different species of grasshopper, but it's a similar swarm yeah but if you wonder those aren't cattle in the background those are wildebeest but uh it yeah but it's a podcast so you don't know so as far as you know i had pictures of grasshoppers flying around you know kansas in the 1870s but i mean the the sheer size the volume uh the biomass of these things is really really shocking uh and that uh, when you when you track back even to the time where records are kept that they were occurring with such frequency in 17th and 18th century uh it just shows you how different the world is today yeah, I mean, this is this is something that people experienced. I mean, when you list off the, you know, all these different plagues, I mean, they were they, you would see yeah. these things several several times. And they were like snowdrifts. The trains yeah. couldn't run because there were so many grasshoppers squished on the tracks; they couldn't get traction. You know, I one time I was driving with my cousin, and we drove between two cornfields, and I we must have killed. I mean. 5,000 grasshoppers driving through there. And I try to imagine that that, that you know, the number of grasshoppers, that swarm that we saw, pales nothing in comparison teeny. to what? I, oh, there's still grass on either can, side of you. Yeah. yeah, can you imagine? I just, I'm trying to imagine I mean, that kind ate of... ate the handle off your tools. It ate, uh, you know... Wool off sheep? Yeah, the, <laughs> the wool off the live sheep, yeah. And, oh, and, I mean, just ate the clothes off of people as they were running from the things. I, absolutely crazy and so they i mean you know they tried every way to kill him and I, i'm trying to imagine that i'm like trying to truly imagine so many bugs that you know you are you were all of your everything your whole yard all your all of your agriculture everything is getting eaten by these yeah things. and into the 30s that, that could still happen where you get swarms and they would eat but it's also i mean it's it talks about a unique period in time in terms of westward expansion uh, when kansas had just opened uh, the railroad yeah. had just come through and all of a sudden kansas went from very sparsely populated to a lot of farms breadbasket sort of stuff uh and you know people were coming out there because it was such good soil and they knew that you know that they could produce very well uh and so a lot of those were first year they had no stock they had 
had no, uh, you know, uh, nothing set aside. Uh, yeah. And they had had a wonderful, well, they had to actually struggle that year anyway because they had a drought. Uh, but then uh, when the spring came, and the, the grasshoppers came and ate everything, you know, everything that people had. And they had, they had spent everything they had to get there. Gosh, you'd have nothing left over. I mean, they're eating your clothes. They're, you're, yeah, you're, they're, they're eating the paint off of the houses. and it, Absolutely crazy. These And this is something that, you know, these were, I mean, it's literally biblical kind of level of. <laughs> well, and they're standing out in the field with a shotgun. I meant you'd kill a lot of grasshoppers, but you're not going to kill a trillion, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. You can, you yeah, can, that, they're, that, they're, they're, they're trying to shovel them into, into you know, bonfires. And the, the means and the tools and all the stuff they used to try to fight it. And, in, you know, in the end, you, you, you can't do anything against no. a plague. So I mean, there's a great you know there's great lessons here. One of them being that the nation really did pull. We were at a point in the nation where when yeah. you know, when newspaper reports came saying these people were suffering, then aid came, uh, and that's you know that that represents a really shift in in America and the frontier life and things like that. But you know it was because of the, you know where, what was going on in Kansas at the time that this one grasshopper plague was particularly devastating. Yeah. Uh, and of course I you know, I don't know if we want to spoil the ending there, but there is such a bizarre twist to the oh, yeah. to the tale of the of the grasshopper plagues. Uh, and that that you know just leaves us perplexed today. So this this says a lot about it says a lot about biology and ecology. It says yeah. a lot about how people interact with nature. It says a lot about how you know things that we can't control, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, natural disasters, are uh, impacted by and impact human history. And you know the the, the fact of you know, the fact of what's going on in humanity, of course, has a massive impact on what it means yeah. when you have a natural disaster in a particular area. I mean, it's and it's also a story of you know how when terrible things happen. You know, people pull together and do something about it. All we have to complain about today, that whatever you want to talk about, political division or wars, uh, you know, all over the world today. And I mean, anything that you think are uh, uh, inflation. I mean, we have a lot of reasons to be upset yeah. today. But man, you know, uh, uh, a swarm of 10 trillion grasshoppers didn't come and eat everything you own. Right. <laughs> absolutely. So, I, I mean, they, they must have. They just absolutely just. It's it's I mean it's all cartoonish almost the way they oh, describe yeah. these things. Yeah, they saw, the woman had she had green she had a green stripe in her dress and they they flew in and ate the stripe off before before she could do anything about it. And I I, I mean it truly truly sounds sounds I mean it sounds fake. I think you'd think yeah. it was made up if we didn't have. Well, it had to be hard. I mean, how many of you would you know want to put up? You know, when the, the years we have a lot of cicadas and they're all on the trees and stuff like yeah. that. I mean, how many how many people how how would you handle if you were literally covered head to toe in bugs? That we're trying to figure out what on you is edible. I would cancel everything. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't leave my house. And there'd probably be grasshoppers in the house in for the that. House, for that matter. Matter. Yeah, they're all just. I but that's. So it's, you can understand why they're out in the field shooting with a shotgun just because you're mad. But I mean, you know, even then you're not. It's not going to yeah. be able to do anything about it. I, I just, I it's blown, blown away hearing this, hearing this story. This idea they ate everything but the mortgage. Yeah, uh, that, that was the line. <laughs> they ate everything but the mortgage. Yeah. But, I mean, grasshoppers, so many grasshoppers that they stop trains from running. Yeah. That just, I, can, that's I just, to, you would think a train is pretty much grasshopper proof. Yeah, that, you, that there would not be some number of grasshoppers that a train couldn't plow through. Yeah, they couldn't plow, and that it would literally, the train, it was, I mean, there were so many, it was like plowing snow that the, the train couldn't make it. Yeah, absolutely wild. I, it's, it is, it is hard to imagine. And it's, it's, it really is incredible to me that it's just something that's, you know, it's a thing of the past. It's not something it is. we... It is. I mean, uh, you know, there's some talk that that it could return to North yeah. America, but uh, in in a way, and and you know, it's it, we'd love for grasshopper plagues to be forgotten history, right? I don't think oh, anybody yeah, thinks they're a good thing, uh, but uh, if we forget. Uh, then uh, what happens when we face other yeah. issues going forward? You know, and so I mean, if anything, we want to remember how we came together and survived it, uh, and we want to remember how we, you know, uh, how we eventually mitigated it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, certainly, uh, you know, the the people who lost everything, you know, that's a story that deserves yeah. to be remembered. Yeah. Yeah. These these bugs, you know, they have a 
you describe it, this like biological system that allows them to, you know, to plague. So they, they start to, as they, as they are hatching, they start yeah. to like literally change. They and change, group they change together. color, they change behavior. They become a different insect when there's, when there's more of them. Really and wild. Then they, and then they, and then they breed more of them when they, when they breed more of them. And yeah. I mean, literally it's like you're, they, they move forward because the guy behind you is going to eat you if you don't. They just run forward. <laughs> you just got to keep going. And they just clear the, clear the fields and clear everything. It's, it's amazing how they, how they evolved to that in the first place. And the yeah. world that they lived in, where they could do that every, you know, so many yeah. years, and probably bring new plant species, and, and probably, but I mean, that they could do that, and that would still be, you know, the next time a plague came, there would be something to eat is astounding. Uh, but then, how that different that is is the popular as the continent becomes populated, yeah. and, and you know, the impact that that eventually had on the grasshoppers. It's all just an absolute extraordinary story. There's the cat. Okay, yep, there we go. <laughs> Wouldn't be the history guy if there wasn't a cat. One of the one of the things that is is funny in this one is the idea of them pan frying the locusts. But yeah, I, I, honestly, at the point that they've eaten everything else, yeah. I mean, there's <laughs> there's talk today about you know, the new world order once you eat bugs or something like that. I don't yeah. know, but I'm not going to get into whatever new world order it is. But that was an interesting solution, and and actually one that's been used in Africa too. Yeah. Says if they're eating all your food, just eat the grasshoppers. Uh, and and that list of the menu, I don't, I, I you know grasshoppers sautéed in butter. I just just don't know what to think about that uh i mean i you know i no i do I, it sounds disgusting actually. it doesn't sound good right <laughs> yeah. i i can't imagine under i, I mean i eat cargo i eat snails that are in you know cook anything in enough butter and garlic i guess it's tasty but and yeah I, I guess it is a you know it's it's a modern it's the way our our, our culture is today but we're we're not bug eaters we're not and it's uh by and large and so I'm just not that, uh, I'll admit, sounds kind of gross to eat I bugs. I wonder if that would terrify them, though, if they start landing on you and just start checking them in your mind. Maybe, maybe we'd scare the grasshoppers away. <laughs> <laughs> they can't do it because they'll just get straight eaten. Yeah, that's uh, you ever I, eaten a gra- you know you can still you can get them sometimes chocolate covered grasshopper or yeah, whatever. I've I've heard of that. They'll also I mean gosh they make I don't know where you get them here exactly but bags of fried ones that they've put in various uh, kinds fried grasshopper. Of, wow. Yeah, I'm not. There's I'm a, not there's that an ice interested. cream place in Missouri that's famous for doing different things and they have ice cream that's got grass and it gives you that crunchy like there's nuts in there. You know I'm sure it is crunchy. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I would. Oh. It would. It would take some getting used to the idea of eating, yeah. of eating those things. That's. Yeah, that's that's what I'll say. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not really hopping on board. I, you know, I, I don't want to judge anybody who likes eating grasshoppers, but. Well, and maybe they're better than they think they are. But uh, yeah, that's. Well, I mean, I guess it was that or starve. Yeah, and if you're at that point, well, I guess I'd rather eat a grasshopper than. We never hit a point where kids was like, "Yay, it's grasshopper year!" Woo-hoo! Well, that's that's essentially what happened. Grasshopper happens to the... soup, grasshoppers do roasted they... grasshopper. We managed to hunt the passenger pigeon to extinction. That's so true. If we yeah. started eating grasshoppers and yeah, large enough numbers. The passenger pigeon was a whole different kind of plague because <laughs> uh, this was dinner. That's right. That's yeah. true. You could you were eating those things. Well, they tried to do that here, but I even then I have to imagine it's uh, well, never took off. That idea yeah. just never quite took. Off. I'd still Instead, kill them when they to... were young was which was a much more popular solution. Oh, that you know, it really is incredible that that the that it, it, we end up solving this completely yes, well, on accident. Yeah, by accident. But yeah. how we we address the issue of grasshopper plague. Really, it's a really interesting, and I, I feel like it's a it it's is. an example of you know how I mean you look at ecology and how things can work. And this was a species that was so numerous that they didn't even save specimens because yeah, they yeah, never no, thought they would have. They, no one needed a, them. Yeah, they thought we're always going to have tons of these things. And now, you know, now we don't have specimens. We don't have. It's, it's an interesting thing. And, you know, it's, I guess it tells you something about, you know, evolution and about ecology. And 
animals. Well, absolutely, is, and, and you are about humanity too, yeah. and everything we face. And obviously, if you want to talk about ways that you know insects affect humanity, I don't know, yeah. but you know, probably mosquitoes have done more to yeah. affect humanity than than grasshoppers, but uh, or locusts, or I mean, there's all sorts of different. So it's not a shock when you think about it about how insects affected humanity. Yeah. But funny, I mean, this this episode, you know, in, insects nearly eliminated grapes. I mean, we nearly yeah. lost edible grapes, wine grapes from the world, uh, or the way that they came and just like literally ate an entire state uh, in <laughs> just, one summer. Just like, yeah, we're going to come eat everything in this. That's, that's one of the things I love about history. You never know what you're going to run into. But this idea that, you know, insects and grasshoppers so yeah. dramatically transformed history and had the potential to be much more dramatic in how they transformed history uh, is, I mean, that's, yeah, that's good reason to say that deserves to be remembered. I don't know if you call them pirates because when they're eating the wool off your sheep, maybe they are. All good stories involve pirates. <laughs> they're certainly yeah. stealing. They are. And it was also interesting. I don't know. It, when I did the research on this one, uh, it was interesting to see how a grasshopper hops because how because yeah. yeah how they can hop leap so far. Uh, and the other side is saying if a person did that, you know, probably probably squish you. Squish you. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I guess that's the the advantage of having their their little exoskeletons and stuff. Uh, but, yeah, but it's it's, it's wild. Really, that it's they a really unique their... design to the leg yeah. that allows them to move with such force. Yeah. And you know that's you know the, the grasshoppers are in many ways extraordinary, including their ability to create a trillion bodies and come and eat Kansas. Well, <laughs> eat all of Kansas. Kansas yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it's something to be able to look around. It's something I like about this episode is we're able to look around and see, uh, you know, grasshoppers and maybe see them in a slightly different light, uh, which is not necessarily what you expect when you... It's not, especially a channel, but this, yeah. this is not an entomology channel. We don't know that much about bugs. We don't. But, yeah. but we... <laughs> I learned a lot about grasshoppers for this episode. These are longhorn grasshoppers. Shorthorn grasshoppers are different. The Mormon plague, the Mormon, they call it the Mormon beetle. That was a yeah. shorthorn. These are long, so they behave differently. It's a real, you know, it's interesting stuff, and that was historically, you know, historically there it was is. there was a way that history came together with you know with ecology and with these this particular species that and allowed this particular plague, this particular plague in this particular year to be yeah. particularly devastating, uh, and also you know learn a lot about you know what it was we had come together as a nation enough that uh, we could survive even grasshopper plague. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.